Coming to you from Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection, I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each month, we bring together national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations we normally have on the front lines. It's just that this time, we've got microphones in our faces, and you are listening in. And this month, we welcome a very special guest, Allison McKinney-Tim. He is a human rights lawyer, scholar, and faith leader with two decades of experience defending the dignity and rights of those on the margins in the U.S. and globally. And in 2017, Allison founded the Justice Revival, a Christian human rights agency that is taking on one of America's most deep-seated and formidable challenges this year, women's human rights and the passage of the Equal Rights Amendment. We would love to hear your thoughts, so please tweet to me at Lisa S. Harper or to Freedom Road at Freedom Road Us. And keep sharing the podcast with your friends and networks and letting us know what you think. All right, y'all. So I will absolutely never forget the day it was announced that the ERA did not garner enough state ratifications to amend the Constitution. I sat in front of the television, you know, those big old televisions with the, with the big, with the like, ears sticking out of it, you know, the antennas that suck out of it, you know, trying to get to the, get the right signal back in the day. We had three channels, three, six, and 10. That was ABC, NBC, and CBS. Oh, and PBS as well, which was on the alternate dial channel. I just couldn't believe that I was sitting there in the year 1979. The deadline for set for ratification was that year. My mother was 31 years old, a veteran of SNCC in Philadelphia and raising three young girls on her own after a divorce. As a child, Sharon, my mom, was told the best career she could hope for as a Black woman was to be a secretary. She watched her mother and her grandmother suffer the stunting impact of medical racism that killed successive generations of our family's women by neglect and taught our women not to dream of a life of significant contribution to society through their vision and work and skills. So when we sat in front of the television set and it was announced that the ERA did not make the deadline, I asked my mother, why? She did not answer. Instead, she closed her eyes and she shook her head. It's been about 40 years since the ERA was halted in its tracks by conservative Christians trying to protect white supremacy, white patriarchy. Who paid the cost? Women paid the cost. Allison, I wanna turn to you now and I wanna ask you, how did you first encounter the ERA? And when, and, and what did the people in your life tell you about it? Well, first, let me say, I'm so glad to be with you on the Freedom Road podcast for this conversation about the ERA. I can't recall, and I wouldn't have been old enough to remember 
at that moment in 79. And I realized I can't recall exactly when the ERA first came into my consciousness, but Mm -hmm. the struggle Mm -hmm. for gender equality is something that I was surrounded by from my earliest memories. And that was through my mother's story and my grandmother's. So I grew up knowing always that my mother, who is an animal lover, had dearly wanted and hoped to be a veterinarian, but was told, no, women don't do that. So that dream was shut down flat out. Wow. Wait. (laughs) Yep. Before you go forward. Like wh- how early was that dream shut down for her? Was it shut down for her? Do you know, like when she was a child or when she started to graduate and figure out what she wants to do with her life? Or was it in college when she decided to choose a major or did she even go to college? She did end up going to college eventually. I think the dream must go back to her childhood because mm-hmm. when her dog had puppies, she swaddled them and pushed them in a baby carriage around the neighborhood. <gasps> oh my God. That's the kind of animal lover she was and still is to this day. So it's a spiritual passion she has for caring for animals. And the, the ironic thing, Lisa, I didn't learn until very recently that it was actually her mom who told her women cannot do that. Oh my God. So ladies, so here's the thing. There is such a thing as internalized patriarchy. Talk about right. it. Hello, somebody, right? Talk so about internalized, that. And our mothers, I, you know, so I'm, I'm writing my next book. Actually, I just turned it in. I finished it. And so I'm so all excited, but I'm, I'm full of the stories. And one of the things I learned from my mother's story is very similar to yours, that our moms, think about it. We live in a time and an era where everybody is pushing and believes that they should be able to live fully into who they were created to be. But This is a brand new thing on the face of the planet. Yes. Like we've literally never, ever, ever experienced a civilization that expected women to rise as far as men. And I should say that with caveats because there were, there obviously have been women, been women queens and emperors, and we've never had one in America. Hello, somebody, not yet, Mm -hmm. but we have had women rulers. But let's just, let's make this simple. In our part of the world, we have never in our entire history in the Western civilization had a society that assumed that women should flourish as much as men. And so our mothers were even deeper in that than we are. And so they passed it down. That's the thing that really strikes me is that This was not only passed down by men. Patriarchy is not only passed down by men, it's also passed down by women. And maybe even part of that is to protect their daughters, right? From dreaming too much. I can imagine. I can imagine. I I mean, it was shocking to me to learn that. So Mm -hmm. what happened was my mom, because she had a deep interest in science, she wanted to be a professional. She went on to study pharmacy. And she became a licensed pharmacist. She went to graduate school. She got A's in graduate school. And when she graduated in 1970, she struggled to get a job. In Texas, 
she was one of the first women hired as a pharmacist. And so I always knew, and I was always very proud that my mother was a groundbreaker in her profession, in the region of the country she was in. And you know what, Lisa? I have a news clipping about the story that ran about my mom and two of her graduate school classmates. The title of the story in the news said, Uh pretty pill pushers relate to the drug scene positively. And it ran in the comics section. What? True. I I would not make that up. I have it in Check. my keepsakes and it's got a picture of her and her classmates. Oh my and, God. and so that was striking. Her groundbreaking accomplishment was someone else's trivial feature piece. Comic piece. So this was a type of discrimination and she couldn't get a che- checking account once she was a married woman. She was paid less than her male colleagues and told outright, well, he's a head of household. And so there was all manner of indignity, discrimination and lesser treatment. Right. But you could think of this and say, well, this is in still a professional middle class context, just not as bad as it could be. But at the same time, I knew my grandmother's story, which Uh, was growing up in a farming family in Oklahoma, struggling through the Depression and the Dust Bowl, facing tragedy early in her life, her fiance being killed in a car accident, her father dying in a tractor fire not long after that, and having eight younger brothers and sisters who had survived and having a mother who herself had been married as a teenager and had no education. Oh my God. So my grandma, who you can see why she's a family hero. Oh yeah. My gosh. Mima started working as a school teacher as a teenager. <laughs> Wait a minute. She was called Mima. You call her Mima? Where were you guys? Where were you located in the world? <laughs> well, Mima was Where from was Oklahoma. She? Oklahoma. There she is. <laughs> Oklahoma people. Oh my gosh, you were like the true salt of the earth. Absolutely. Wow. The breadbasket of America. That's but so adorable. Mima, deep woman of deep faith, got a scholarship from the Baptist University, went to college during the summers. And the point that I want to make is mm-hmm. I always knew working for her was not some political statement, that it was part of a struggle for survival, that Mm. there was a need, her family was counting on her, and she did everything she could to help Mm. support that family. And that taught me a lot. Although I grew up in quite a privileged environment as a a white middle-class woman, I had a consciousness that for a lot of women in the world, working is not, it's not even a choice. It's just part of what people have to do in the world. And I knew how hard it is if you can't do that, or if you're not paid what you earn when you work. Hmm. So, so when did you first learn about the ERA then? I'm still trying to pin exactly when I learned about the ERA. I learned about the, the struggle for legal equality in law school not Mm. through a law course, but through a guest speaker from the State Department who came 
and gave a lecture and showed us a resource that the State Department used, which was a handbook for medical providers about female genital mutilation. Oh, wow. A global human rights violation. Mm -hmm. And I learned at that same time that there's an international treaty on women's human rights that the U.S. is not a part of, a different subject for a different time. Wow. But- what, what, wait, I just, I'm sorry. You can't drop these bombs and we're going to go skip, <laughs> skip ahead. We just got to take that in. Take that Okay, in. people, did you, rem- did you hear that? There is an international treaty on women's rights and the United States of America has refused to sign. Just really think about that for a second. Oh my God. That's right. And if we're being technical, we signed it, but did not ratify it. So we're not, That's it. we made some commitment, but not fully. Okay. And Wait, let me just, we got to be clear about what yes. that means is that we signed it in the, at the UN. We said, but everybody else, okay, we believe in this, but then by ratification, what we mean is we're going to now embed this in our own laws. So We have not done that latter part. We have not said, okay, this is going to be our law. So I guess we decided to look good without being good. That's right. That's right. We took one step, but we didn't fully embrace it. We're one Mm -hmm. of only seven countries that has not joined that treaty globally. And it's quite related because that treaty Mm -hmm. calls on nations to do things like enshrine basic equality under the law. And the Equal Rights Amendment is the most basic, foundational, elemental type of human rights reform. It is simply an update to our centuries-old constitution to say Mm -hmm. that women are citizens of equal stature in this democracy. And Mm -hmm. the language is quite simple. The relevant language says that rights shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of sex. It's very straightforward. That's and it. It's a type of provision that most nations around the world have in their constitution. We're one of only 18 countries that doesn't have this type of explicit provision either ensuring full equality regardless of sex or specifying women's rights in the Constitution. Okay, so why didn't the ERA become an amendment? What happened? Yeah, I summarize it with two problems. One is misunderstanding and the other is fear. One, I think broadly, there was a counter movement in reaction to the movement for women's rights and gender equality that was quite reactionary and and quite effective in thwarting what had been the very quick rise of the ERA. So the ERA was adopted with broad bipartisan support in 72. I believe 30 states ratified it within the first year. Mm -hmm. And it needs 38 total states in order to become a constitutional amendment. So it seemed inevitable. But Mm -hmm. then, like with every social movement for justice, this one faced a counter movement. And the counter movement was fierce. And I think one, always what's at play here is a, a misunderstanding, I think, within Christian communities 
of what our own tradition can teach us about rights Mm -hmm. and human Mm -hmm. rights. So that's Mm -hmm. a whole subject. But I think socially, politically, there were various fears that were stoked. The leaders that opposed the ERA made women feel afraid. In particular, I think women who were full-time homemakers. So we're talking right there about middle-class white women made them afraid that gender equality would mean they would be lesser than, that being a homemaker would be devalued. So those early opponents led by Phyllis Schlafly of the Eagle Forum, they baked pies and they took pies to Congress for one of their political actions and said, we want to be homemakers. And so they were afraid of the benefits they relied on in the traditional male breadwinner, female homemaker, middle-class structure being upset. These are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road podcast, where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. So, Allison, what are some of the top myths about the ERA then that were circulating then and that are circulating now? One myth that I hear, especially today, is that we don't, quote, need the ERA because women are already equal enough in the United States. And a version of this, I think the subtext to this is, be grateful. It could be worse. You've come pretty far, baby, haven't you? It's that kind of attitude. And that really disregards Mm -hmm. the facts that I I know you're very well acquainted with, Lisa, about Mm gender-based violence, about the wage gap, about pregnancy discrimination, about how hard it is we've seen during COVID for women to Um, work and earn a living and also care for their families or for any working parents for that matter to do both of those things. And so Mm -hmm. really, if, if we're looking at the evidence, there's a lot that points out that even in these five decades since the ERA was first introduced, we haven't been able to overcome, say, intimate partner violence enough to prevent One out of three women in this country from being affected, one out of five from being affected by rape or attempted rape. And so that myth, I think, is a non-starter, and I think it's easily addressed. Can I just say, like, for some years, talking about violence, domestic violence and rape feel, might feel like, oh, that's just so extreme. That's not most people. It's one out of five, first of all. But also, understand, it wasn't until 1995 that the last state in the United States outlawed rape in the context of marriage, 1995. So we can't assume that everybody's going to be on the same page that women deserve to be protected. It's just not the case when the very last state. I mean, this is during most people in America's lifetimes today, literally, most definitely all voters. Another thing I want to say, I've been thinking a lot about the race gap here, right? Women of color, July 2020 Washington Post report says that Black women in the nation's capital, in Washington, D.C., earn 51 cents 
for every dollar earned by a white man. Get this blew my mind. And that creates over the 40 year career, career span, it creates a $2 million pay gap between black women and white men. Hello. And that number is more like 62 cents nationally. So it's not that much better. Okay. So 10 cents more, 11 cents more nationally, but that creates a pay gap of a million dollars, according to some reports. You know, by blocking the ERA, the people who have these logics that they are employing, who are afraid of losing their position, their social position of favored status as housemakers or as breadwinners, they're actually creating, they're siphoning off the flourishing of women of color in our America and and actually have made the nation weaker as a result, because that's millions of dollars less that get to go into our economy. Well, the loss of maternal income translates directly into child poverty and hunger. And that's been demonstrated during this pandemic, especially because women, some economists estimate that the clock has been set back a decade on workplace Mm -hmm. gender equity. Women have really felt the brunt of that way. And that affects not just the women, but their children, their families. So it has a ripple effect. And the truth is that the ERA would not in any way prejudice or disadvantage women who choose to be full-time homemakers. It's just Mm -hmm. not possible, especially today where many of our laws have been oriented to be sex neutral. So things like Mm -hmm. spousal support, child support, most of those laws, social security, they're sex neutral already. So -hmm. this truly is a myth in our day and age. The other major myth, Lisa, that, that I think is so pervasive, and this is what opponents are touting the most today. It's a myth that the ERA is a stalking horse for abortion rights, and it could not be more false. And let me tell you, we spent months diving deep into the legal research. And I'm looking right now at a 20-page legal memo my colleague wrote, and we just pressed. I didn't want to take someone else's word for this. I wanted to dig into the materials ourselves. And what we found is that there simply is not a precedent to support the claim that the ERA would strengthen abortion rights. We did not find it. There's not a judicial precedent for it before the Supreme Court. It's not there in the legislative history of the ERA. And so really... What if, I think we need that broken down. What does it oh, mean yeah. not to have a legal precedent that would lead to more abortions? What is yeah. Or, yeah, what does that mean? Great question. When the ERA becomes the 28th Amendment, the Supreme Court will need to interpret it. Now, it'll be an issue of first impression because it will be a new piece of the Constitution. So Mm -hmm. to some degree, there won't be precedents, but the court might look to the closest possible precedent under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Now, Ah. that's important to know about because that's one of those Reconstruction Amendments Mm -hmm. that did not apply to women at the time it was passed, immediately Mm -hmm. following the Civil War, 
even mm-hmm. though some activists, um, including abolitionist Frederick Douglass, wanted it to include women. The 14th Amendment gave citizenship and women were considered citizens, but just not given full citizenship rights. Does that make sense? Not given any citizenship rights because they still didn't have the right to vote. But actually, this is a great point. There was application insofar as formerly enslaved women were included and those who were emancipated, but no women had the right to vote. And certainly, so the 14th Amendment actually brought the word men into the Constitution, I believe, for the first time, and it mentions men three times. So a delineation was made and the Equal Protection wow. Clause of the 14th Amendment that says that the protects against being denied equal protection under the law that was not applied to women until the early 1970s. Whoa. Oh, my gosh. That was not a plot. So if you've seen the RBG movies. Oh, Lisa, you're going to love this part because here's some history. Here's some history that most people don't know that. Yes, that was a groundbreaking reform in the early 70s. Until that, the only constitutional right that some women, white women enjoy. White women. Yeah. Was the right to vote beginning with the 19th Amendment and then, of course, the Voting Rights Act for women of color. But there was no other protection against gender discrimination until uh, the case of Reed versus Reed in 19. Okay, y'all, wait, wait. I'm sorry, we got to go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not go, it. but go back. We got to we have to step back because we have to understand this because we're look, we're talking law. People are mm. not lawyers. They're mm. getting their their heads are going like literally minds are blowing, I'm sure, all over the world right now. So we have to break it down. And I know for me, I'm having a paradigm shift even as I'm talking here. Now, it's funny, too, because you present the conundrum here that what does it mean to be a citizen? Mm-hmm. It means to be equally protected under the law. That's what citizenship is. And that is what the 14th Amendment guarantees of all people. And it says that your status of race or servitude shall not abridge your citizenship. So I never thought, I mean, I'm like, I'm like literally having like an internal turning over here, but I never thought that citizenship was actually not applied to women, that women, and, and if so, in what way was it? Like I, we are not explicitly excluded in the same way that we are explicitly excluded from the voting rights that I recall. At least, honestly, I'm like literally having a paradigm shift as we're talking. <laughs> yes. And it shows you what a long road we've been down because yeah. at the founding of the country, women were very much the charge of their husbands, legally mm-hmm. considered in the same category as children. So these reforms have happened in phases over time, but the kind of the story of RBG in the early 70s was so Mm -hmm. remarkable and revolutionary because this was a new legal theory to say the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause extends to discrimination based on sex was new. And I'm going to tell you one more part, Lisa, that I know you'll want to hear That theory was really developed by a forerunner to RBG, the great Reverend Dr. Polly Murray, who developed that theory. I heard Justice Ginsburg at an event here at Howard Law School in D.C. 
Justice Ginsburg just several years ago referred to Polly Murray as her senior colleague whom she admired and loved. So she very much wow. recognized Polly Murray, who, who, for those who don't know, please learn about her. She was an African-American woman, descendant of enslaved and slaveholding forebears, but she was most importantly a brilliant civil rights and human rights hero and is just now starting to get some of the credit she deserves. Yeah. But relevant to the ERA, I will say, mm-hmm. Polly Murray in her autobiography says she surmised that the ERA would be an uphill political battle. She was keen enough to yeah. see that. And so she thought, well, the 14th Amendment, this could be another path to equality. But If it wasn't successful, she wrote, the case for the ERA would be unassailable. And what we've seen is that over the last 50 years, even the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause, get ready for this, it's not applied equally to women. Now, what do I mean by that? It's called the Equal Protection Clause, but the way the court interprets it when applied to gender, is a lesser standard when they're considering racial or religious discrimination. Oh, my God. So, like, my mouth just dropped open. Oh, my God. So, it's... But as, see, we can see that. But we can see that with the pay gap that we just talked about. We can see right. that. We can see that with the application of Stand Your Ground that was supposed to be protection for women in domestic violence and ended up being weaponized against Black women. That's We see that in medical racism. We see that and neglect of, and and the impossibility of actually bringing a lawsuit against a a doctor who does not take your pain seriously, or a a police officer who who sexually assaults you upon stopping you. If you're a black woman, you don't, your tears don't work to get you out of that ticket or out of that situation. So yes, we see that. But I think that the thing that honestly, it's really just blowing my mind right now. I'm like blown and my mind is blown is the reality that I don't know who did this. I don't know why this is the narrative, but it is the narrative that the only major women's struggle with regard to the Reconstruction Amendments was the Voting Rights Act. You know, that women were set free just like men and women were made citizens just like men, but we were just not, we were, we were excised from the vote. Well, that is true. And yet, substantively, it's not because As a citizen, you are, according to the amendment, due equal protection of the law. And that should extend to all areas of life. And what you're telling me is that that didn't extend to all areas of life, even begin to extend to all areas of life until the 1970s. That's right, Lisa. And I got it. It gets yeah. worse. I'm sorry to bring the oh my god the difficult truth. Okay, the bring late it. Justice Antonin Scalia. Oh, I don't even mention his name. Maintained in his judicial opinions that still to this day, no, that Fourteenth Amendment that has nothing to do with women because those men who passed it back in the mid 19th century weren't thinking about women. So under Wait, stop, mm. stop for a second. Now you understand that the last Supreme Court justice that we just put on the court is a woman who lifts up Antonin Scalia as her 
major person that she emulates. Yes, ma'am. You hit the nail on the head. That is why it's more urgent than ever that we get the ERA acknowledged as the 28th Amendment to the Constitution. We cannot count on that 14th Amendment when the court is shifting and when there is a whole judicial philosophy that would deny women anything under this Constitution except the right to vote. Oh my God, I'm over here rocking in my chair. (laughs) My brain is boiling right now. Oh my God. It's really, truly urgent. This is actually really, truly urgent. It is urgent, Lisa. Absolutely. And it's always important that we have equality under the most foundational legal charter of the nation. It doesn't get more systemic than the Constitution in a democracy like ours. But it's very clear and it's very real right now that we can't just count on the hope that the Equal Protection Clause will somehow continue to be expanded, especially when we know that there are justices who don't believe in it, even don't even believe in the protections we have already. Wow. Oh my gosh. Okay, so what do you think of this? How do we even begin to understand the mindset of those on the court, but even outside of the court, the people who oppose the Equal Rights Amendment? Like you've told us some of the myths, but what's behind that? What are they trying to protect? And something in me does not, it doesn't just lay down that they're just trying to protect, you know, that people think well of them for being a housemaker. Like it's too much. There's more, there's got to be more than that. So what do you think is the mindset behind them mounting a war to keep women from having equal rights? You know, the best I can understand it, trying to truly understand that perspective to the extent Mm -hmm. I can, Mm -hmm. I think they have convictions about gender difference, men and women having biological sex differences that Mm. they don't want to deny. So they want to recognize that. Mm. But what I say to that is this is a legal provision that just ensures we're all equal. It doesn't have anything to say about all the various forms of diversity that humanity reflects, which are all gifts of God. It, It doesn't, it couldn't change any of that. It just says we should all be treated with the God-given human dignity that we deserve. Wow. I think there's also a sexual ethic that underlies this and a kind of objection to what some conservatives may see as a libertine sexual politics on the left. But Really, again, I think that's beside the point. In fact, the ERA has so much potential to help families, mothers, parents. And so it only stands to Mm. truly strengthen the family structure by enabling women to care for their families and by protecting against violence within the home. But there's Mm. been just a relentless anti-ERA propaganda. And I use that word advisedly, Lisa, because truly Mm -hmm. the level of misinformation, I have to say, as a human rights professional, I would say is extreme. And one concern that I have as a human rights educator is just really wanting to get 
better information out there. And especially to people of faith who are also mindful of trying to reconcile their positions on this issue with their faith. Mm -hmm. Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. We're living in the kinds of times that seed books, blogs, magazine articles, and op-eds that move the world forward. Are words floating in your head looking for a place to land? Do you need a safe space to write and share your work with other writers and receive feedback that helps to hone it, sharpen it, make it even better? Freedom Road is launching an international writing group online. Writers from across the globe will come together on Zoom, making space and writing in each other's presence, but in our living rooms, like good citizens do when we are social distancing. (laughs) Then we're going to share what God poured into the world through us. Your one-year membership can lock in your spot in this international writing community, or you can pay month to month. Follow the link in the show notes on our website at freedomroad.us to register today. So, Allison, what can we do about it now? I'm still stuck on the 14th Amendment and how urgent this is really, truly urgent. And I know that the Justice Revival is actually running right now a campaign in order to help move people towards consolidating their support, moving their support not only from their own minds, but also into the halls of Congress so that congressional leaders know about this. And so can you tell us how can we actually make some headway right now? Yeah, absolutely. So one very practical step that anyone can take is to support a bill that has been passed by the House and is now before the U.S. Senate that would eliminate a deadline on ERA ratification. The name of the bill is SJ Res 1, and we're asking everyone to tell their senator, urge their senator to support this bill because there should be no time limit on equality on a matter this foundational to justice. Mm -hmm. The background to that is that, as you mentioned at the top of the show, Mm -hmm. Congress had imposed a deadline on ratification, which they extended once and expired in 1979. Well, how are we talking about the ERA today? What happened was, I think it was in the 90s, the 26th Amendment was passed over 200 years after it had been introduced by, I believe it was Madison. And people said, hey, wait, if that's not too far gone to be out of the Constitution, I think we can do something about the ERA. And it's true. So there is, there is a way, because Congress had the power to to impose a deadline. It also has the power to repeal it through a simple bill. And that's what we're supporting right now. So that's one thing everyone can do. 
Another mm-hmm. action that I'd really like to urge any of the faith leaders in the audience to take is to join uh, both of us, you and me, Lisa, in the yes. interfaith statement in support of the ERA, which Freedom Road and Justice Revival, Sojourners and others are championing. And we mm-hmm. have a growing, diverse interfaith list of champions for this statement, affirming human rights of all people on the basis mm-hmm. of faith and calling for full equality, full equal citizenship. And faith leaders can find this on the Justice Revival website, right there on the homepage. There's a red button, support the ERA. It'll take you there. And that is- We'll link to it. We can also link to it in the show notes. Oh, that'd be great. That's a place where we we certainly need faith support because there is religious opposition that is making its voice heard in the halls of Congress already. Okay, so tell me about that because that's uh, that was something that we talked about a little bit ago, and it really struck me because what you were saying was that people who who want the world to be a more just place tend to believe that thinking these things is enough that. Being a just person, like wanting a just world makes me a just person and makes the world better. But it doesn't make the world better if my wants for justice doesn't translate into law, into the way we actually structure our society. And so what's really funny is that people on the religious right, they know that. So they are making their voices known. They want the laws to stay as they are or even to go backwards, actually. And so they're calling... They're showing up. They're showing up in the halls of Congress. That's and right. So what's the ratio that you said that you've heard is like from people on the right who are trying to push back against the ERA to those who are trying to actually push for it that are making their voices heard in Congress? Well, religious opponents of the ERA have remained highly mobilized and they focus on this issue. It's a fundraiser. It's a moneymaker for them. It's a hot button issue. And I think it rallies their base. And there's just a lot of fear being stoked. What we found when we got involved in this issue, Lisa, and it's just in the last three years that the ERA movement has been revitalized, we found that there was not a lot of vocal faith support to be found, with a few notable exceptions. But when Justice Revival joined the ERA coalition. There's really a a handful of faith-identified groups within that coalition presently. Mm. We would love to see that grow. And I know the coalition Mm. is seeking to grow and diversify its membership. Uh, Mm -hmm. Former President Jimmy Carter, God bless him, he is a proponent of the ERA. So his photo is there on the ERA coalition website. And he, Mm. since the time when the ERA was before Congress and he Mm -hmm. was in office, he has long Mm -hmm. supported the ERA. So there are people of faith who have been spokespeople, but it it is a David versus Goliath matchup at the moment. Wow. So really, literally just adding our voices, adding our bodies, making a phone call to your legislative representative, to your senator, especially to your, well, actually to your house person as well, your house representative. But I think we're talking about the Senate SJ one resolution one, right? That's correct. So call your senators is the real it's call your senators and say, we want you to eliminate the deadline for the ERA. 
That's Just, right. Is that really literally that would make a big difference? That's correct. Absolutely. And sign the statement if you're a faith leader. And sign the statement. And my goodness, if you lead a faith organization and you want to get involved in this struggle with Lisa and with me, please contact us at Justice Revival. And we are working to grow the, the faith coalition of ERA champions. Wow. When you think forward, 20 years and the ERA has passed, as in the deadline has been eliminated. What's the world that you hope to see? I would love to see a world free of rape culture. Mm. I would love to see a world where an allegation of human trafficking of a 17-year-old gets more than a raised eyebrow in the U.S. Congress. I would like to see a world where we have more than a quarter of our public elected representatives, more than a quarter being women, where women are represented in leadership, in public life, in the private sector, in the faith sector, in the sciences, in in all the professions and, and trades in ways that reflect, you know, women's presence and contributions in other aspects of life. And Mm. when I think about my little nine-year-old niece, who is already an aspiring human rights lawyer and author, Mm -hmm. I just, I don't want her to face fear for her bodily integrity or safety. Mm -hmm. I don't want Mm. her to leave a building and have to pull the keys out of her purse and put them in her hand and think... Mm. Maybe if someone tries to get me, I can use my key to defend myself. Wow. Because we will have changed the culture. We've got to change the culture. Wow, that's deep. That's why faith has to be a part of it. Mm -hmm. It's not just legal change. We know we we see that in the struggle for racial equity. It's it's both. Well, that's one thing that I, I have to say that most people don't really make that connection between the law and culture. But I love how you said after we've passed the ERA 20 years from now, 15 years from now, the culture will be changed. And I I am a strong believer that culture is actually created by the structural environment within which we live. If you live by the ocean, you have a very different culture than if you live in the mountains. And it's because you have different things to build with. You have different things to create your music from, different trees, or you're not going to have seashells for conchs in the mountains, right? So you get literally different sounds and that creates different arts and that creates the different way of seeing the world. So in the same way, law creates structure in our lives. Law literally creates pillars around which all of us move. And that's why the Civil Rights Act was so important. That's why the 13th and 14th Amendments were so important and the 19th Amendment, because it changed the culture. So what would the cultural change be with the passage of the ERA? Wow. Oh, my gosh. It would really, it would move us, all of us, it would move us closer to that vision of the beloved community, closer to that world where we are all equally protected under the law. That's right. And so therefore, what freedom would we have? Absolutely. Freedom to dream, freedom to use the 
the gifts and talents and affinities that we have, the freedom to succeed, and also the freedom to contribute to our families and our communities and our churches and, and mosques and temples in better ways as well. It's important to recognize the ERA. It's not only about women. It is importantly about women. It's about people of all genders. That's important to say too. But mm -hmm. if any group is excluded from equal dignity and full citizenship stature, it degrades all of us. It really dishonors all of us and it dishonors our nation. And mm -hmm. at the end of the day, I believe in America. I think we can do better. I think we can mm -hmm. do this. Mm -hmm. Are there any scriptures that you're motivated by? Always Micah 6, 8. Oh, Always Micah 6, yeah. 8. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. Always the great command. Love the mm. Lord your God with everything. Heart, soul, mind, strength, and neighbor. Mm -hmm. And in studying the great command across multiple gospels, it's also made me a fan of Leviticus 19, that, that passage from the Torah where you see a whole vision of treating your neighbor justly and fairly, a vision of ethical living. And the capstone mm -hmm. of that is the neighbor love that Jesus commends to us in the gospels. And so we see right there in Levit Leviticus 19, that love and justice, they're not separate and they're certainly not in competition. They are part of one whole and they are the key components of the vision of the kingdom of God that Christ mm -hmm. preached and proclaimed. It's honestly, for me, it's a profound thing to be in conversation with someone whose specialty is human rights. Because I, you know, I got my master's in human rights and I remember during that period that I was, I think, the only Christian, self-professing self Christian in our class. And so I was like an anomaly. And I brought, I actually brought a representative from Sojourners, a friend of mine, and also someone from the UN to speak on the intersection between human rights and Christian faith. And I sure did. <laughs> Back in, was this, 2005, 2006. And it was actually a new thing for the people in my program, like others who were not Christian to, to see, oh my gosh, this stuff is in the Bible because we have such a misunderstanding of human rights within the Christian faith, largely by the same people who are pushing back against the ERA. Like they have framed human rights as this big communist, liberal, socialist, fascist, basically all of the ists project, but it couldn't be more far from the truth because it came out of in response to World War II, fascism and Nazism. And it was not a communist agenda. It was a, it was actually a, a protection of the image of God agenda. That's after right. The Holocaust. Absolutely. In so, fact, what you're saying that resonates so much with me, Lisa. Can I just share one more story with you right on that point yeah. of seeking to bridge our world of Christian faith 
and the world of human rights. Because to me, these are closely, integrally interconnected. But just as you've described, there is a bit of a cultural gap, or there has been, I think that's changing a bit more Mm -hmm. recently, but there has Mm -hmm. been a gap. And that's unfortunate. When I first got involved in human rights work, Back in around 2005, I was going to East Africa, where I lived for about three and a half years, to lead a program to defend widows and orphans' property and inheritance rights. Wow. So these were victims of global poverty, folks living on a dollar a day, very much struggling to get by. And the abuse that was so prevalent there is that relatives would come after a man died, throw the widow out and say horribly cruel things to her. Go back to where you came from. You can't stay here now that your husband is gone. You're worthless to us now. You can't stay in that home because you're just a woman. And they had legal rights. They actually had Mm -hmm. rights under that constitution, Mm -hmm. under Mm. the laws of Uganda. People just didn't realize it. And before I moved to Uganda, Lisa, I had a lunch at a cafe in Northern Virginia with a woman leader in the conservative Christian movement who someone had introduced me to. And I came to understand that she was all for helping poor widows in Africa over there. That seemed like a very Christian thing to do. But she was also a chief opponent of the treaty to protect women's rights under international law. And without that treaty, we would have had no way to help those women. That was exactly Mm -hmm. the source of the most powerful moral and legal tool available. And that's Mm -hmm. human rights. Mm -hmm. But I share that story just to illustrate the point you made that there's such a misunderstanding and there's such a lack of understanding among many Mm -hmm. of us, Americans, not just Christians, but among Christians, what does our tradition teach about human rights? What has been the role of people of Christian faith in the human rights movement? And certainly we know there is this very ambivalent Christian history in terms of being on both sides of key justice issues. But the leaders we hold up and celebrate today, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's, the Reverend Dr. Polly Murray's, they are uniformly the leaders who stood for liberation, which we now recognize as part of the human rights movement. And and this, in a nutshell, is why a group of friends and I came together to form Justice Revival to address Mm. the very problem that you've put your finger on, that we've got Mm. to bridge these worlds. Wow. Thank you. Thank you so much. Micah 6-8. Micah 6-8. Thank you. The conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road podcast is recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. This episode was engineered and edited by David Dalt of Sandberg Media. Freedom Road podcast is produced by Freedom Road LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us. 
Stay in the know by signing up for updates. We promise we won't flood your inbox. We invite you to listen again next month. New episodes drop around the first day of each month. Until then, join the conversation on Freedom Road.